With newer IOL designs and advanced cataract surgery techniques, dislocated lenses are less common than they used to be, but they still happen. I'm Rebecca Hepp, Editor-in-Chief of Retina Today, and you are listening to New Retina Radio, brought to you by Retina Today and Birdmark Communications. Today, I'm sitting down with a panel of experts to talk about secondary IOL surgery, which often requires that the surgeon have a host of tools and techniques at the ready. Patient education, lens choice, surgical technique, and minimizing post-operative complications are all important considerations. Let's dig into it. Joining me today is Dr. Christina Wang, an Associate Professor of Ophthalmology at Baylor College of Medicine. Thanks for joining me today, Dr. Wang. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. We're also joined by Dr. Ashkan Abbey, the Director of Clinical Research at Texas Retina Associates in Dallas. Great to be here. Dr. Maria Baracol, CEO of Doctors Baracol and Associates, is joining us from San Juan, Puerto Rico. Thank you so much for having me. And last but certainly not least, Dr. Omesh Gupta is an Associate Professor of Ophthalmology at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital and a member of the Retina Service at Wills Eye Hospital in Philadelphia. Thank you for letting me participate. I appreciate it. Let's start at the beginning of the patient encounter. Dr. Gupta, how do you approach your patients who require a secondary IOL? There's, there's a lot that goes into that decision. Um, you know, I think for me, the first thing I look at is um, the lens status. Um, so if they are a phacic or they're pseudophacic and there's some dislocation of the lens, is there retained lens material? Is there vitreous prolapse? Uh, so those are some of the anatomic considerations I make. Um, I also look at, you know, if they've had a history of glaucoma surgery, if they've had a tube or a trab, if there's angle pathology, um, corneal endothelial disease, uh, these things are very important. If they had a history of trauma or if they have iris defects that may preclude, you know, an anterior chamber lens. Um, and specifically for um, one of the procedures that uh, I, I like to do, uh, which is um, Gore-Tex scleral fixation, I do look at the status of the conjunctiva as well, looking for if there's any scarring, if they've had a history of buckle, if they've there's some retraction of the conjunctiva, these things are important. Uh, and if I'm doing intrahaptic scleral fixation, uh, I'll look at, you know, the, the uh, where the panis is superiorly and fairly. It, it uh, definitely plays a role with refractive status. Dr. Baracol, what factors do you take into consideration when you're deciding between rescuing an IOL versus replacing it? Well, I, I usually look at what type of lens was dislocated. Uh, sometimes I still get the all PMMA IOLs which removal of them uh, would require a very large incision. So I try to reposition those and to reposition those, the only way you can actually do that is by suturing them to the iris. Uh, so that's what I try to do with all PMMA lenses. If it is uh, a one piece acrylic lens, those we usually have to remove unless the dislocation is with the entire capsule, in which case you can try to uh, fixate the capsule uh, with the IOL, but that is, you know, technically more difficult. So those lenses we usually remove and then I replace it with a three-piece, uh, usually a three-piece IOL, uh, which is my go-to, the Lucia, size Lucia, uh, to do a scleral uh, fixation of the haptics. Uh, ACIOLs I do not uh, use frequently unless it's maybe a very elderly patient, but I haven't really placed one in a long time just because I'm more concerned. Many of these patients have uh, 
endothelial cell counts that are low and they have uh, angular cornea problems. So I tend to stay away from those. I think I want to add to what Maria was saying too. Um, I've, I think in the pre-op planning phase, when you're looking at the dislocated IOL, uh, if it's a three-piece IOL, I think that's where it gets a little interesting when it comes to rescue versus exchange too. Um, I know a lot of people will want to try to rescue every three-piece IOL that they see. But uh, in my experience, at least, a lot of these IOLs that are maybe covered in capsule and you have to manipulate a lot in order to remove all the residual cortex and capsule and everything else, uh, you oftentimes will see those fail if you do a scleral fixation. So uh, the best bet for that in a case where you have to do a lot of manipulation to remove cortex and capsule from a lens is probably just to remove the whole thing and start over with a new three-piece IOL. Um, I think I found the highest dislocation rates in scleral fixation of three-piece IOLs comes from the ones where you try to reposition, maybe try to be a little too heroic and reposition ones that maybe you could just remove and add a new one instead. And I think you can tell from all of the input so far and, and the great comments that have already come out that these patients really need to be reminded during that preoperative counseling stage that this is not your simple run-of-the-mill cataract surgery. I think a lot of patients have that in mind when you talk about putting in an artificial lens. They think, well, this will be very similar to my other eye or the first time I had my cataract surgery done. And that the fact of the matter is that a lot of these eyes are already very sick or they've undergone some very complicated um, and complex scenarios. That's why they're seeing you for a secondary IOL. And so to remind them that although we aim for an excellent refractive error, that might not always be hit on target because of the calculations that become much more complex. And to remind them that the healing journey, the recovery can also take a little bit longer than what they might anticipate, I think goes a long way to uh, making sure that they're happy down the line. To that point, there are many, many different techniques to approach each and every patient, uh, depending on their unique scenario. Dr. Gupta, do you have a preferred secondary IOL technique that you go to most of the time? Um, I, I think, you know, we talked about some of them. I, I think the PMMA comment is, is a very good one. Uh, I try not to open up, uh, I make a large wound and um, explant those if, if I can get away with it. Um, sometimes I will um, scleral fixate that with Gore-Tex or iris fixate. I think that's another reasonable approach. Um, and uh, as we also talked before, and as uh, you know, at multiple conferences, people get really upset when there's a lot of intraocular gymnastics that occur to clean off a bag and clean off a Sommering's ring and then expose haptics. Uh, I, I tend um, to want to make sure that the intraoperative time is relatively short, uh, because I think that's probably the biggest issue that you face in terms of postoperative corneal edema, postoperative CME, you can get with longer cases. So I think for me in my hands, taking out the lens and putting in a, a new lens makes more sense, whether that be, um, you know, intraoptic sclerofixation or cortex. So I think, you know, whether you decide on one of those, the pros and cons, we can sort of go back over um, multiple times, but I think ultimately it comes down to whatever technique you feel more comfortable with. And for me, um, I like uh, Gore-Tex fixation with the MX-60 lens. Uh, for, I don't have to worry about tubes or trabs because I scleral fixate at three and nine o'clock. I don't have to worry about, you know, landmarks like Panis because at three and nine o'clock, you don't really have that issue. Um, and I, I find this surgical time to be very predictable um, and the refractive outcomes to be very predictable as well. 
Um, and it's a pretty easy uh, technique to teach um, to fellows. Uh, and so I enjoy it. And uh, I can I find that they don't have much issue with IOL tilt or centration when they when they learn to do it, even with the first or second case. So that I usually stick with the Gore-Tex fixation. Well, I, I, I have tried your technique and I actually like it very much. Uh, that is the Envista lens, right? That, yeah, the, the MX60, the Envista lens, yeah. Uh, I, I actually do like that technique. That lens is available in one of the surgery centers I go to, you know, not all the lenses we want are available all the time. But my go-to technique that I use the most, I have tried the, the straight Yamani uh, with the needles, but I like the modified Yamani and I do it with 27 gauge uh, uh, cannulas, uh, pulling the haptics out. And I always use a size Lucia because unlike other proline haptics, uh, uh, the Lucia haptics are more rigid. So your chances of breaking them or having them uh, uh, bend or move, which is one of the reasons why we have uh, decentration and and astigmatism surprises afterwards are much less. And what I do is I just move the chokers around so that I don't have to uh, to use extra uh, extra cannulas. So I only have to uh, open one pack. It's sort of like the uh, the the modified, very abbreviated uh, uh, modified Yamani, I would say. So Maria, you're performing your vitrectomy also through the external externalizing cannula. Is that what you mean? It's a well, what I do is I do the vitrectomy first. You know, I place them uh, at the correct angle, and I do the vitrectomy, and then I pull one out, and then I reposition. I I change as I'm pulling it out. I just change the infusion, and the the, uh -huh. the cannula that I take out, I just reposition elsewhere. Since Got it's it. twenty seven. Um, then that way I don't have to open a second pack, which is a big concern uh, for uh, surgery centers. They're not very keen about mm -hmm. opening two packs for that. Yeah, Maria, I do the same technique as you. Um, I really like using 27 gauge trocars for my tunnels. And, uh, but I usually will end up using five trocars total, uh, mainly because I just don't like moving everything around all that way and, and manipulating my myself and my hands and everything in that way. I don't, it's, I just like to make it straightforward for every case, but I, I definitely agree with you. The financial incentive is there to try to use just three. Um, personally, the, the one thing that I really like about the modified trocar assistance clerical fixation is also the efficiency of it. I mean, I've tried all the other techniques as well, but I, though I, I've done a lot of these scleral fixations with the trocars. And for me, I just, that is the fastest one that I can do. It's my, it, so my surgical time is by far the fastest with that one. And so I feel really comfortable continuing with that one for most of my cases. It's interesting because I, I was doing all sorts of different ones. I did the Yamani. I have, you know, the localizer and everything. And actually my assistant, my tech said, you know, uh, please don't use those needles again because you're so much faster when you're uh, doing it through uh, the cannulas. And I go like, really? You know, because you sometimes <laughs> you don't really realize. He goes, definitely, definitely. Mm -hmm. So after he said that, I, you know, I thought about it and I said, oh, okay, he must know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, because I think it's much more harder to 
to because of the angle with the needles, I think it's much harder than putting uh, the forceps in to grab the tip uh, of the haptics. I have a question for the group who's for that technique. Is everyone doing a handshake technique for these cases or are you doing uh, just I, what I do is I normally actually just allow the lens to fall on the back and then I, I use, uh, I just kind of focus in on it with high magnification uh, under my viewing system. And then I just try to grab one haptic off the retina. Uh, so to, in order to basically avoid doing a, a, a handshake or bimanual technique and not manipulate the haptics as much. So I'm wondering if anyone else does that. I, I tried that when I first started this technique, Ash, and I know Mark Walsh really nicely described this in a retina paper a few years ago. I think that's a great technique, but really I've really gone to handshake or hand-to-hand -hand technique. I love working mostly anteriorly and I find it to be really, really fast. And you sort of lose that third dimension for depth in terms of having to finagle, you know, too high, too low. So I really like working up close anteriorly these days. And, but you're absolutely right. I agree with you and Maria that it's a very efficient technique. And I'm sure I've integrated pearls from both of you along the way. I mean, very few people have done more of these than Ash. And so uh, it, it's a really a fantastic thing, uh, technique. I find the um, the trailing haptic um, side tends to be sometimes in view and sometimes not in view. So I, I like that hand-to-hand um, -hand technique for the trailing haptic side. You can sort of pass it to yourself and then externalize it. So um, that works. I think when, when it's sitting on the retina, you can grab it nicely where you want on the leading haptic side. I think that um, is amenable to just externalizing it directly. But on the trailing haptic side, it can sometimes get a little tricky. Especially yeah. when there's a nasal bridge, you know, if you're doing the right eye or left eye and how the, you know, if there's a deep set orbit, um, these things can sometimes uh, come back to be a, you know, a technical problem. So, so two things that I'll add for tips with respect to that, because I do agree that trailing haptic tends to be a problem with these cases in terms of finding it when it gets caught in just some sort of corner of the eye almost. Um, the first thing is, I always end up doing the side that has for the tunnel that's actually closer to the nasal bridge, the tougher tunnel first when I'm trying to get that one out. And then so my trailing haptic is usually the one where I don't have to deal with the nose at all. And that just makes it easier for you to just to approach it and try to grab it when it's inside the eye under your viewing system. Uh, the second thing is when you still can't see it, uh, a good trick is just to push, push posteriorly on the optic. And when you push on the optic enough, you can usually visualize it. it usually shifts it just enough, you know, not too much pressure to, so you don't mess with the other haptic that much, but just enough so you can see it in the corner of your view and then you can go ahead and grab it from there. So. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, in most of the people as conventionally taught, um, this technique typically does that procedure fixating at 12 and six o'clock. Mm -hmm. Um, Imani himself does it at three and nine o'clock. And I, I, when I do it, I, I do it at three and nine o'clock because I also worry if they had a history of pseudoexfoliation or something, even if they don't have a tuber trab uh, and then they ultimately get a tuber trab. And now I've sort of operated in the site that they typically like to do a tuber trab. I, I kind of want to keep that conjunctiva native and the sclera untouched. Mm -hmm. I, I, I tend to do uh, three and nine, not exactly three and nine. It's actually more like, 10 and four or thereabouts. Yes, and I, I find that what I do is I always, people with prominent noses or deep set eyes, I always tilt the head. I, I never like them taping the head because you can really tilt the head so that you have better access during the case.
Ash, perhaps we can go back um, a little bit and talk more about the haptics and how you go about protecting these haptics. For example, how are you reducing the risk of exposure uh, to due to conjunctival erosion, or even if you do have an exposed haptic after surgery, how are you managing that if there's no evidence of infection? Uh, so the first thing we'll start with is pre-op planning, like Ramesh said. So conjunctival mobility is really important to assess in these patients beforehand. So you know where you want to put your tunnels. You want to put, place them in the most mobile conj. If, there's, if there are areas of scarring, then you want to avoid those areas for sure. Um, so that would definitely, if you go in an area of scarring, you're going to have a higher risk of erosion. But the second thing is uh, when you're doing, and, and I'm sure all of us flange these haptics now, given all the data that's out there that shows that it'll reduce the risk of dislocation. When you make your flange, I like to have the least amount of surface area uh, underneath the conjunctiva of the haptic afterward. And so what I do is I tuck the flange all the way into the tunnel until it's just the, just the very tip of the flange is, is visible um, to me under the conjunctiva. And I think just having less surface area to erode the conjunctiva is a better option to make to maintain uh, the integrity of the conjunctiva and reduce the risk of erosion. Now, if and when a haptic does erode, as long as there's not an infection, um, I oftentimes will actually take them at the slit lamp. I'll, I'll give them some anesthetic drops and put a little betadine in their eye. I'll place a lit speculum and I'll actually at the slit lamp, take a Vanna scissor and just place the banisters perpendicular to the haptic and just trim it right there at the, at the slit lamp. And then just gently tuck in the haptic a little bit more uh, after I've cut it just to make, and then you, what you'll usually see is that the conjunctiva will, will just kind of grow over that area pretty well, or at least uh, it, you won't see another area side of erosion from there. So I, uh, that's my technique if there is an erosion without, uh, without an actual infection present. What I do also to prevent this is sometimes, you know, the haptics are longer than we need them to be. So cutting them and then doing the flange is necessary. You know, after I put them in, I play with it to make sure it's perfectly centered. And then if you push them in and you have excess haptic, uh, it's, it's not going to be centered and it's going to be too loose, I think. So I trim them you know, to exactly where I want them. And then I tuck them in. And I think that prevents them from coming out more afterwards. I think that's a great tip, Maria. And also I do something very similar before I even burn the flanges. I make sure that I'm happy with the centration of the lens itself, because sometimes they are too long. And by trimming one side a little bit more than the other, you can get it to lay a little bit, you know, in a, in a more ideal position. And then to, to Ash's question earlier, I, I think the way you burn the flanges also is important. You want to make sure you have a very even, smooth surface at the end. I think that also decreases the risk of conjunctival erosion later on. Um, and I'll add one more thing. It's, you know, it's important when you're actually grabbing these haptics, when you're externalizing them, to grab it as, as parallel as possible to the distal tip of the, of the haptic. Um, only to just prevent any kinks in the actual haptic itself, which those can sometimes just kind of pop up a little bit underneath the conjunctiva. And I think that increases the risk of erosion as well. Mm -hmm. uh, we also see this for the Gore-Tex listeners out there. We, we do see erosion um, uh, of Gore-Tex or conjunctival erosion uh, in this procedure as well. Uh, one of the things that 
um, you can do to avoid that is when you're reapproximating the conjunctiva back to the limbus is to drag the conjunctiva away from the site of the cortex. And usually I drag it infratemporally and infranasally and anchor it to the sclera so that over the cortex, there's a completely smooth, intact surface of conjunctiva. And if you do that, the chance of erosion is, is pretty much next to zero because there's no rough surface um, and you have intact conjunctiva that you never really touched. Um, and to echo some of uh, Ash's comments, uh, I've been in a scenario, uh, there's a couple of places that patients I've seen who have had UG following uh, intrahaptic scleral fixation and I had to like explant the IOL and it's amazing how difficult it is to take the haptic out of the, the, the tunnel. Um, and in the setting of an explanting a, a Gore-Tex scenario, it's even harder because that Gore-Tex, as some may know, is, is porous. And what happens is over time that the porous nature, there's a lot of cellular ingrowth that occurs with Gore-Tex with um, the overlying and underlying conjunctiva and sclera. And you can, it's, it's literally impossible to, to grab the Gore-Tex on the outside of the eye or underneath the conjunctiva after it's that ingrowth has occurred. So it almost becomes part of the eye. Um, so the explant situation can be very tricky in both of these scenarios. Omesh, do you have any tips for explanting a Gore-Tex sutured IOL? Yes, so I, I used to, um, like I said, try to explant it externally, like try to cut the Gore-Tex on the outside of the eye, but it's, it's actually amazingly hard to find, especially if it's months, sometimes years after they, they were scleral fixated. So the, the way I usually do it is I will do most of my explanting from inside the eye. So I'll grab the IOL and then uh, cut the IOL and bring it out and also grab the Gore-Tex from inside the eye and then try to snip it and try to yank it through. Um, it, it, it can be very difficult to get it, especially it's on the, uh, the external portion of the Gore-Tex that sits underneath the conjunctiva, between the conjunctiva and scleral. That can be almost part of the eye. So I tend to leave it. Um, I tend to do that with uh, intraaptic scleral fixation. Sometimes I'll leave the, the haptic that's in the tunnel and just snip the haptic as far out as I could to get the IOL out and just go to a new site for scleral fixation if, if necessary. Hypotony in the immediate post-operative period seems to be fairly common in these surgeries. Dr. Wang, is there anything you do to minimize this? Yeah, hypotony is definitely not uncommon in these secondary IOL cases. And I think it's partly because we put so many holes into the eye and there's often a lot of manipulation as well. Based on my own experience, I've seen hypotony more frequently in techniques that involve uh, inserting needles or instruments directly through the sclera, like the original Yamani technique, or maybe the Acrios technique, and less commonly so with the trocar-based scleral fixation, which is my, my preferred approach. But, you know, uh, ironically, I just saw one today that we had done yesterday with an IOP of five. So it just goes to show you that it can <laughs> happen with any approach. To, to combat this, I would recommend a few things. I think number one, making the sclerotomies as small as possible and then minimizing the manipulation through them. So you're just making them big enough just to pass your instruments and then limit the torquing of the instruments through them. That would be one recommendation. The second would be to use some sort of infusion line to stabilize the globe, preferably in the vitreous cavity, which is second nature to us because oftentimes we're combining this with a vitrectomy anyway. But even if you're working only anteriorly or with your anterior segment colleagues, for example, 
you can put in a leaky cannula into the anterior chamber. And I think that really helps to stabilize the globe. And then the third point I would make is never to hesitate to suture your wounds. I oftentimes will slip my IOL in through a corneal wound. And I always throw a 10 nylon suture through that wound at the end of the case, just to eliminate another possible point of leakage. And I've even done the same thing with sclerotomy. So the sclerotomies that I perform the vitrectomy through, I'll suture all of those. And even sometimes if you have a tunnel that you're externalizing through that ends up bigger than you intended, for example, you can throw a simple stitch uh, just even around the haptic in, in rare cases. So I will say that even if you do have post-op hypotony that usually has no adverse effects down the line. And many times it actually resolves by the first post-operative week, especially since most of us use post-operative topical steroids as part of our normal regimen. Yeah, I'll, I'll add to that, that I completely agree about the size of the sclerotomy. That makes a huge difference. And, you know, when I reviewed my first 500 or so cases of these, when I did sutureless fixation, uh, we found a very significant difference in hypotony rates for those that had 27 gauge tunnels versus 25 gauge tunnels. And so, and it makes intuitive sense there. And it just kind of, the data at least panned out as well in that way. Um, but I'll also, as something that I've been doing lately that I think may help a little bit as well is uh, just a partial air fluid exchange at the end of the case. And I mean, some people don't love that idea because they think it's going to make the lens tilt or anything, but I've never really seen that as long as I have flanges on my, on my, uh, on my haptics, I feel like I have not seen any sort of tilt afterward or dislocation as a result of just an air fluid exchange. So just a little air afterward, just to help to tamponade just a little bit more your sclerotomies that you've made. Um, and I've really gone towards what Maria does, which is all 27 gauge for the entire vitrectomy and also for the tunnels, because I think that really does reduce the rate of hypotony overall. I, I also irrigate uh, the the paracentesis that we use and the corneal scleral wounds, uh, because I think I think that is very important. And and usually, since we're using viscoelastic to do these maneuvers, the viscoelastic also helps. Uh, if you don't remove it in its entirety, <laughs> protects you from having hypotony too. So <laughs> that is that is something else. But um, at the other thing that you can do with the 27 gauge, even though they rarely leak, they can leak if you manipulate them a lot, is like needling them in the opposite direction, uh, either with a needle or with the same uh, uh, trocar. And that usually just opens up the fibers and lets them, you know, close more if you have, you know, a leaky one. Yeah, I mean it's it's hypotony. I agree is um, is, is is an issue. The, the wounds, um, as Christina mentioned, are is for sure the number of wounds. And the other thing uh, we all are reminded are these uh, these are complicated eyes to begin with. They have a history of trauma. Sometimes a ruptured globe. Sometimes they've had a drop lens and they're left aphakic by the cataract surgeon. And we got to clean out the vitreous cavity, remove all the retained lens material, and then scleral fixate something. Um, so, um, you know, hypotony is not uncommon in that scenario, uh, as also there's, you know, ciliary body shutdown that occurs and they, they're just not producing as much aqueous in the early post-op period. So that's, that's an issue. The other thing, um, I'll do, um, when I do skull, intrapic skull fixation and I see a leaky wound, um, especially at the site of the, um, the haptic or cortex and the, this, the site of the cortex is leaking is I'll use a, a BV needle, uh, an adovicral. Um, the, the needle, as we all may know, is uh, a very nice non-spatulated needle. 
um, you can you can throw it through the wound and stay away from your haptic or stay away from your Gore-Tex, whatever procedure you're you're choosing to do. And the bike roll has a little bit of inflammatory component, which help will seal that wound a little bit more. Um, so it it works nicely to to close wounds in those scenarios. Great, thanks everyone for all these wonderful pearls. Maybe we can just go around and have you know our final thoughts on um, you know what you think might be the your top pearl for somebody who is just starting to do secondary IOLs, perhaps the first thing you tell your fellows. Maria, do you want to start? Uh, yes. Uh, make sure to mark uh, the incisions exactly 180 degrees from each other. And when you angle, uh, the, if you're using the trocars, if you angle the trocars and try to put them in the same distance in so that you will not have tilt uh, tilt from your IOL. I think you have to be meticulous about that. I'll say, don't be a hero. Um, I think the, the biggest thing that I've learned from my experience from early on until now is that I should not try to rescue every lens that I see. And so it's okay to take a lens out and start over with a fresh one. And oftentimes that'll give you the best outcome, uh, visually and, uh, also in terms of complication rates. I really echo what Maria said. I think marking is probably the most important step uh, as technically difficult as some of these steps are. That is really something that applies to all of the secondary IOL techniques and you can't be too meticulous about that. So make sure the cornea is dry. I like using a 12 point rate corneal marker these days to make sure that I'm exactly where I wanna be. And then another thing that I find that we don't talk about enough is I really like to do a very thorough job in cleaning up the residual capsule that oftentimes is hiding out at the sulcus. A lot of these secondary IOLs sit pretty anteriorly. So just having a little bit of capsule on one side is something that can contribute to post-operative tilt. And that's the most frustrating thing, especially when you've had a case go completely smoothly. And then just one more thing is just to make sure that all of your movements are symmetrical and mirrored on each other, not just the distance behind the limbus, for example, but like even the angle that you're approaching your beveled tunnel and the length of your tunnel and the modified Yamani technique, all of those things are important to making sure you have a good outcome. I would say for me, I'll give a more 30,000 foot um, piece of advice. My, my piece of advice is, is that none of us, no matter how volume you are, do enough of these that you can sort of be on autopilot and just get through the case. I mean, I think whether it be like a pseudophagic detachment or an ILM peel, you, you can almost be on pseudo on autopilot a little bit. This these cases require you to have full concentration at all times. Uh, you really have to be on it um, because you know one one step leads to another, and if you mess up step one or step two, then it really makes it hard down the road. Um, we don't do enough of these that you can be comfortable with you know, a variety of different types of Yamani or types of Gore-Tex, I would, you know, my, my advice would be to pick one and try to get as good as possible with that particular one, whatever technique that is. And I, I would encourage everyone who is listening to this, whether you're a, a fellow who's coming out or a new associate or you're a seasoned partner, that these are like an incredibly uh, rewarding procedures. And it can be, you know, they're of the fellows that we train, they come up repeatedly will say, this is the number one practice builder when they come out of fellowship, more than any other procedure, more than any other medical thing that they know, this is a thing that builds a practice more than anything else. So I, I would encourage everyone to, if you haven't given it a try, give it a try. 
Great. Those have all been really wonderful pearls. And I want to thank each and every one of you for joining the discussion tonight and sharing your expertise with our listeners. This concludes our episode on secondary IOL considerations. Please tune in for future episodes of New Retina Radio.